In the year 2000, I was honored to serve as chaplain for the largest gathering of evangelists in world history. Uh, 13,000 people came from 210 countries and territories uh, for two weeks of learning and fellowshipping and, and strategizing about reaching the world for Christ. The results have been awesome. The Billy Graham Association put on that conference and very kindly arranged for my whole family to come along with me. So while I worked 18-hour days, sometimes longer, Jana and the kids traveled all over the Netherlands. Uh, they, they saw museums and visited historical sites and tried desperately to avoid the creepy parts of Amsterdam. Um, one of the most fascinating experiences they had was, was where they saw two different responses to the Holocaust on two successive days. Okay, the, on the first night, the first day, Jana took the kids to Anne Frank's house. Um, and that night when they came back to join me at the conference, I asked the kids about the experience. Now, we, we had a thing we did with the kids um, about that age where we would, we would require them to only say five words so that one or the other didn't dominate. So they had to give five words to describe an experience and then they could talk about the experience. These were the five words they chose about Anne Frank's house. Dark, severe, hopeless, hands off, and whistle. As they explained why they chose those words, it turns out the people running that site were really harsh. There were no smiles. The house was dark. It was sad. The presentations were all materialist only and thus devoid of any hope. And, and if any child wandered near any of the furniture, there was a whistle. And this severe matron would point at them and, and whistle. The very next day, my family traveled out to Harlem and visited the Beye. The Beye is the house that was made famous in Corrie ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, which if you have not read, you should. Uh, like on Frank's house, this was a scene of real tension. Jews were hidden from the Nazis in each place. But at supper that night, the five words the kids chose for the Beye were light, gospel, hopeful, hands-on, and bell. Now, like the Frank home, the residents of the Beye were betrayed. They were sent to the death camps. It didn't matter to the Nazis that the Ten Booms were Gentile Christians. They were hiding Jews. So just like the Franks, the Ten Booms were carted off to the final solution. And yet, the Ten Boom Museum feels totally different. Despite the realities of death and evil, there's, a, there's an overpowering attractiveness, a lightness at the Beya. The gospel of Jesus, by the way, is clearly presented to everyone who walks through there as the only answer to all suffering. The people at the Beya were full of hope. They were looking beyond this world, and everything was hands-on. They let our kids climb into the hiding place and, and practice ringing the bell that they used to warn of the Gestapo coming. My children could not leave the Franck home fast enough. They wanted to stay at the Beya all day long. And when I asked them why, they said, Daddy, it's, it, it's like a lighthouse. This is a really dark place, and that place really shines. We want to be where the light is. Two Dutch families went through the same experience, and yet they emerged very differently. Why? The answer is found in the great theme that resonates through the events that are described in Daniel chapter 12. Turn your Bible, please, to Daniel chapter 12. Uh, there are amazing contrasts that are exposed as this angelic prophecy completes in Daniel chapter 12. Turn there in your Bible. Let's read the first part of verse 1. At that time, Michael the great prince, who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be a time of distress such as has never occurred since nations came into being until that time. Stop there. 
As we point out in your notes, um, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up, look on the left side, you'll see the notes tell you there are two big reveals here. The first is Michael's rising. Michael is the great archangel who is shown in Scripture to specifically work on issues that affect the Jewish people. At that time, the context is talking about the end of time, at that time Michael will rise up. Now the Hebrew Ahmad is a really telling word choice. It appears two times in verse 1. Once we translate it, will rise up. The other time we translate it, stands watch. And, and those renderings are great, but the background is what's important. The root word for Ahmad is really old. Folks, this is one of the oldest verbs in history. In fact, it's one of the oldest verbs we have that appears in other Semitic languages outside of the Bible. Um, it, it's one of the main ways of expressing stand up in Hebrew. In this type of usage, where it's used here, Ahmad is employed for standing in the sense of holding something up. That, that's why, um, uh, by the way, Ahmad uh, morphed into modern Arabic as a word for pillar. Uh, Michael rises up to be a pillar, supporting or standing watch. Now, given the context of this angelic speech, Daniel 10 through 12, we know the archangel is going to stand as a pillar of support for Jews who trust Messiah Jesus during this great tribulation that is to come. Please don't misunderstand. Ahmad doesn't necessarily indicate physical protection. It means support, encouragement, strength to keep on to the end. Verse 1 that we just read is expanded in a whole lot of other biblical texts that also describe this great tribulation. At that time will be an era of unprecedented pain in the world as the evil Antichrist will be used by Holy God to recompense sin. Before Antichrist himself is brought to justice, get this, a higher proportion of the world will die than will have died at any period since the flood. But during those seven years of tribulation, the Bible prophesies that millions of people, including many Jews, will trust in Messiah Jesus. Verse 1 ties in with all those other passages to indicate the tribulation Jews who trust in the gospel can be hopeful. God is hands-on with them. Do you see the parallel with Corey Ten Boom's house? Look, gospel, hope, hands-on. That's what Michael will oversee as he rises up. Now, in contrast, God displays the distress of the great tribulation. Michael's protection seems to exclude non-believing Hebrews. Instead, they are promised punishment. Non-believing Jews will face severe separation. They are hopeless. God is hands-off with them. In other words, they're going to experience on Frank's version of a trial. The, the people who sprout on Jacob's family tree will not perish completely, but those Israelis who go through the tribulation without Michael's protection, they will face an awful time. God predicted all this about 80 years before Daniel chapter 12. Um, read with me. Jeremiah 30, you take the underlined text. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress, but he will be saved from it. Though a remnant will remain, this will be worse than any prior holocaust. Matthew 24, Jesus describes it this way. Uh, Jesus says, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. By the way, when you read Matthew 24, you'll see that, that Jesus references Daniel there. And he does so because all of this comes about during the 70th seven 
that, uh, that is described in Daniel chapter 9. We, we lack the time today to go over that now, but you can easily go online and look up our, our study from a few days ago on Daniel chapter 9. Uh, this is the 70th of those 77s Daniel prophesied. For today, just notice this, notice this. There is darkness and there is light in every event as God unfolds prophecy into history. What makes the difference? Jesus. It's faith in Jesus that activates Michael's hand-on engagement with the Jews in the tribulation. It was faith in Jesus that gave the ten booms peace and light as they went through the horrible darkness of the Holocaust. Others faced the same problems, but they devolved into hopelessness. How about us? Let's correlate this closer to home. Let me, let me just ask you this. When the tragedies that undoubtedly await you develop tomorrow, what's that experience going to be like for you? Is it going to be dark, severe, hopeless, hands-off, whistle? Or is it going to be light, gospel, hopeful, hands-on, bell? The difference is whether you let the true light of God shine in. It is the only thing that changes anything, and it changes everything. 1949, Stuart Hamblin wandered into the Billy Graham crusade in, in Los Angeles, one of the weeks it was held over. He heard and understood the gospel of Messiah Jesus, and he trusted him. In the days following, Hamlin could not believe how different everything was in his life. Oh, he was, he was still poor. He still faced a number of serious problems, but there was, there was light now. He wrote in his journal, there is light now. I have a peace that passes understanding. He had even read Philippians when he, when he wrote that. He felt like he could see beyond his circumstances. So he was so moved by the difference in his soul that he sat down and wrote a song about it. He had no idea that five years later it would become a huge hit. Number eight on the Billboard top in 1954. So let the sun shine in, face it with a grin. Open up your heart and let the sun shine in. Some of you are old enough that you actually know the song. Um, others of you are a little younger and you think it sounds familiar because it was used as the cover for a Windex ad in the 1980s. Um, <laughs> I actually know the song because I saw it on a rerun of the Flintstones. Um, Pebbles and Bam, you remember that? Pebbles and Bam Bam say it was great. Um, the point is that with Messiah, even tribulation can be faced with a grin when we let God's sun shine in. Like the Jewish believers in the coming tribulation, Christians today are going to face evil. We are. But we know that God will see us through. All God's people said, Amen. Now, let's read the rest of verse 1 and a little bit further. Rest of verse 1 and a little further. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The two big reveals of verse 1 are followed by revelation about three groups of Jews. First are those who escape. Look at verse 1 all together. At that time, Michael the great prince who stands watch over your people will rise up. Amok. There will be a time of distress such as never occurred since nations came into being until that time. But at that time, all your people who are found written in the book will escape. Now, I, I know what you're wondering. You're, you're, you're asking yourself the same thing that I did when I first read this passage. In your pebbles imitation, you're saying, what is this book? Great question. Thank you, Pebbles, for asking. Um, the book is referenced many times in Scripture. You can see some of the passages listed up here on the slide, Daniel 12, Luke 10, etc. It's most often called the book of life 
uh, in the Bible. Revelation 20 gives a really pithy summary of, of the book. Um, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Those who are in the book of life, they're rescued. Those who are not get thrown into the lake of fire at the final judgment. In the context of Revelation and, and the other New Testament references, we learn this, that those whose names are written in the book of life are Christians. So the ones who escape equals those who are in the book equals people who trust Jesus. All those who are found written in the book of life are rescued. Now, these book of life passages are not necessarily physical. They're much more concerned with the eternality of the spiritual life. Therefore, the escape that's described here of these Messianic Jews in the tribulation, it is not necessarily physical. That's not to say their escape can't be physical. It certainly can be. In fact, a, a number of other prophets communicate that a remnant of Jews will be physically protected during the tribulation. And, and the way they describe it, it seems to point particularly to this fortress area around Petra, where you can see me teaching uh, in this picture in Jordan. Daniel's prediction is that during the great tribulation, there will be Jews who will trust Messiah Jesus and they will escape physically and or spiritually. Second subset is found in verses two through three. This describes the glory of those who proclaim the resurrection life. By the way, that's the headline atop the right side of your notes, those who proclaim the resurrection. This is a concept that runs throughout the Bible. For, for example, uh, Psalm 19, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Do you, see the, do you see the common idea? The heavens declare God's glory. Those who see the truth and who share the truth, they do the same. They shine like stars, and thus they declare not, not their glory, but God's. That's why Psalm 19 ends this way. Read with me, Psalm 19, verse 14, all together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, Lord, my rock and redeemer. The wise person, the one who looks deeply into God's revelation, wants his or her life to be acceptable. They want to glorify God like the stars. Sadly, this image has become tarnished. Because you see, our stars are so temporary, they are so faded and jaded, it is really difficult for modern people to feel the power of Daniel 12.3. Thankfully, I recently read a welcome antidote I want to read you something that was penned by a famous editor, a very famous editor named Gerard Baker. Here's what, here's what he wrote. He said, my father, that's him there, my father got a birthday card from Queen Elizabeth II this week. He doesn't normally receive greetings from such well-placed sources. It's a privilege bestowed on British citizens when they reach their 100th birthday. Her Majesty will be sending one to her own husband next year if he stays off the roads. <clears throat> My father's resilience probably doesn't owe much to Britain's socialized medicine, in case you're wondering, whatever its pros and cons. I'm pretty certain that his principal secret is a character and lifestyle defined primarily by duty, not entitlement, by social responsibilities, not personal privileges. The primary animating principle throughout his century has been a sense of obligation to family, God, country. In an era dominated by the detritus of broken families, my father was a devoted husband to his wife of 46 years. A dutiful father to six children, he was never more present and vital than when my parents suffered the unthinkable tragedy of losing a child. In an era when the culture seems to accord its highest accolades for bravery to those who make speeches about gender or the challenges of working in movies, it's worth remembering the kind of existential courage my father and his generation showed. He volunteered for the British Army in the days before World War II and spent the next six and a half years in uniform. 
In an era when religion is increasingly a curiosity, my father has lived with an unshakable belief in the promises of Christ. Indeed, I sometimes think he's lived so long because he's better prepared than anyone I've ever met to die. He closes with this. I've been a fortunate man, blessed by a good education, my own wonderful family, some worldly success I didn't deserve. But however proud and grateful I feel, it is eclipsed by the pride and gratitude I have for that man who, without fuss or drama, without expectation of reward or even acknowledgement, has got on for a century now with the simple duties, obligations, and ultimately joys of living a virtuous life. Close quote. That is the kind of star that verse 3 is talking about. That's what verse 3 is talking about. But that's not how we think today. Here, let me, let me tell it to you this way. I, I wish you had a dollar for every time someone has written me or said to me, Wayne, you are such a great teacher. You need to be more famous. We've got to get you out of this little hole in the country to where you can be a star. So many times. And that, my friends, is sick. That is the poison of celebrity warping our understanding of what shining like a star really means. Now, there is nothing, listen, there's nothing wrong with, with wanting to be influential for Christ. Godly ambition is fine. That's why the text says, lead many. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be influential, but what the flatterer usually means is not godly ambition, they mean selfish ambition. They mean that I should be basking in my own glory. If that is what I perceive their desire to be, I always have the same answer. Get thee behind me, Satan. Chuck Swindoll has great insight on this. Uh, by the way, I don't agree with Chuck on everything about chapter 12. We have some divergences, but he is brilliant here. Look at this. He says, the world honors the famous and soon forgets them. God honors the unknown and never forgets them. Amen? Only a fool would trade eternal recognition from your earthly fame. Now, look again at verse 2. Let's read verse 2 again. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. The third group of Jews being described here are those who reject Messiah. They are also resurrected, but not to glory. They, they receive disgrace and contempt for rejecting the grace of God. Like much of Daniel, this, this is expanded on in John's revelation. Specifically, Revelation 20 describes this judgment of non-believers. There are four resurrections that are mentioned in the Bible, two of which are here in Daniel 12 too. Uh, what I did was lay out all four in a simple chart there in our notes. Um, it's very simple, but if you'll take a look there, you'll see that leading up to the cross of Christ are the first uh, through the 69th sevens. Um, in your Bible, when you go read Daniel chapter 9, you'll see that they're called weeks, but that's just a translation. The actual word is sevens. It's a, it's a period of time. Uh, they turn out to be seven years. That's how prophets use seven. So these are 69 periods of seven years. And by the way, from the day that Daniel wrote that down until the day Jesus died on the cross, he was precisely right. It was exactly 69 sevens, that many years. Then the Messiah was cut off. Jesus was crucified. He gave up his life on the cross for you, for me, for anyone who would trust him. Did he stay dead? Please say no, please say no. No, he did not. He did not. One of the incontrovertible facts, he rose from the dead. And uh, many, many passages talk about that. My favorite is 1 Corinthians 13, 15. It's just beautiful writing. And that begins the church age, which we are in right now. At the end of the church age, through a number of different things, we won't break it all down, but believers will be resurrected. John 14 describes that. 1 Corinthians 15 describes that. And then we begin the period that we're learning about here in Daniel 10 through 12, which is the tribulation. That's the 70th seven of Daniel. It's described in Daniel 9. 
27. At the end of that tribulation, the saints, that means, saints, by the way, is just anyone who's believed on Jesus. That's how the Bible uses the word. Those people who go through the tribulation that have believed in Christ, they will be resurrected and, uh, and changed. Those who are still alive will be changed to resurrection life. Uh, also, people from the Old Testament at that time, we're told, will be resurrected. By the way, their faith is greater than yours and mine. You know that, right? I mean, we believe in something we can actually see and know and have record of. They were, we look back, they were looking ahead to something that hadn't happened. They were just trusting God's promises that the Messiah would come and that he would pay for their sin, and they just believed on him. That's incredible. So they'll be resurrected as well. That begins the millennial kingdom. At the end of that promised thousand-year reign of Christ, then we've got what we just read about, the resurrection of all unbelievers, Daniel 12, Revelation 20, and that is a resurrection unto perdition. The angel telling this to Daniel, by the way, is describing only Jews. That's why the text here is written in Hebrew, not Aramaic like other parts of Daniel. But as we see in 1 Corinthians and John and Revelation and Thessalonians, the same future awaits Gentiles. And I know most of you are Gentiles. What's your future going to be? Will you escape by believing in Jesus? He took the judgment on himself for anyone who would trust in him. Are you going to receive rewards as, as stars in heaven who shine for God? You know, after these resurrections, there is a, there is a judgment seat, a bima, a judgment seat where, where rewards are going to be given or lost for eternity based on how one lived their life in Christ. Are you going to believe on Jesus? Are you going to receive his gracious rewards? Or will you receive exactly what we all deserve, disgrace and contempt? Those are the wages that are earned by those who reject Messiah. We got, we got one more verse to study. Let's stop right here. I want us to respond in prayer. Let's, let's respond in prayer. Father, I pray for anyone studying with us, whoever they may be, wherever they may be, that you will open their eyes to the light of your grace. Friend, listen, you, you are a sinner. You are it's deep in your DNA, and you know it. You are not perfect. None of us are. None is righteous. No, not one. But God loves you so much that Jesus, proving exactly to be who he claimed to be, fully God and fully human, he died. He gave up himself on that Roman cross. And then he rose from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection, so that everybody who believes on him will follow him in everlasting life. Jesus has paid the price that had to be paid. He can cleanse you and make you new. Trust him right now as Savior. Please let the sun shine in. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand. Everybody else is still praying. I just want to rejoice with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Lord, I ask you to bless all of us who are Christians here, new and, and old, that we will follow your commands with joy because of what you have done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. In light of that, God has two commands for Daniel. Uh, read verse 4, or the first part of verse 4. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Now, to keep secret, 
That seems weird. That reads strangely in our language. Setom is the Hebrew word. It, it means to make sure an original it stays safe. Look, it, it's less like what Frodo was supposed to do with the ring in Hobbiton, right? Keep it secret, keep it safe. It was less like that and more like what your lawyer does with your will in Dallas, right? Just keeps it safe. In other words, it doesn't mean to hide, but to protect. Um, here's a great explanation. Dr. Gleason Archer says this. In the ancient Near East, important documents such as contracts, promissory notes, deeds of conveyance, they were written out in duplicate. The original document was kept in a secure repository, Satong, safe from tampering in order to conserve the interests and rights to all parties of the transaction. Daniel is to make sure that this is safely recorded so no one can alter it. Same idea continues to us, friends. Look, surely you know this. Inside and outside our modern churches, there are manifold voices that want to change Scripture. They want to water it down. They want to make it so it's supposedly more palatable to modern taste. Please listen to God's command. Keep it secret means keep it safe from alteration. Amen? Second command from God is to seal. Hetom uh, is the original word. It's a fun little rhyme in Hebrew. Setom, hetom. Uh, hetom is based on the ancient practice of, of testifying by virtue of placing one's personal cylinder seal. Look, when a, when a Babylonian official was drawing up a contract, they, they, they wrote in cuneiform in the clay, right, and, and in the tablet, that's how it was done, and then at the bottom would roll across, before the clay was, was hardened, it would roll across the person's personal seal, their signet or their, or their seal. We, we, do a, we do a similar thing when we add um, embossed uh, signatures and, uh, and seals to contracts and documents like that. So look at what God's angel is saying to Daniel. Daniel, you are to identify yourself with God's prophecy. He's to be tied to Scripture unequivocally, to live in a way so that everyone can see his connection to God's promises. Same should be true of us. But it's not always easy, is it? This is Pavi Reiseinen. She's a physician. She's also a member of the Finnish parliament. Um, tomorrow, she will be questioned by the Finnish police, by the police in Finland, because members of the LGBTQ plus, 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 plus community have accused her of a hate crime. That's serious. What did she do? She tweeted a Bible verse. That's right, Romans 1, 21. On the day that her state church was paying for a gay pride parade with which she disagreed, she tweeted, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. By putting her name on scripture and connecting herself with God's word, I think she was obeying the meaning of Daniel 12, 4 and she incurred the wrath of those who hate God's word. Here was her response. I think it's almost worthy of Daniel. I was very impressed. She gave an interview this week, and um, Dr. Pastonen said this, I never thought I would face a criminal investigation for sharing my deeply held beliefs. It came as a total surprise. As a Christian and a democratically elected member of parliament, I've often heard things with which I disagree, sometimes very strongly. I, I have felt insulted at times. I believe the best response to this is more debate, not censorship. These police investigations raise concerns about limiting the freedoms that have been guaranteed in our Constitution and in international human rights treaties. A major, listen, listen carefully, this is really well said. 
a major threat for freedom of religion and free speech is that we don't make use of these rights. I hope these criminal investigations won't lead to self-censorship among Christians. I'm going to use my rights regardless of the police investigation. I encourage others to do the same. Close quote. That, my friends, is what it means to seal. Not to be, uh, not to be ugly, but to fearlessly connect oneself to Scripture, speaking truth in love. All God's people said? That takes us to the two summary responses. Go back to verse 4. <clears throat> we read the first part. Let's read it all. But you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. Roam about is a really fascinating Hebrew word. It, 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 it means to aimlessly wander around. Uh, that's why I wrote the headline in your notes, Many Will Be Like Chickens Without Heads. Um, if, you, if you're not aware, kids, um, chickens tend to roam about for a while after their heads are removed. Aren't you glad Chick-fil-A is not open today after learning that? Um, <laughs> Anyway, that's what people are like. People are like that under the kind of crisis that Daniel's describing. They flop around, panicked. About a century after Daniel wrote this down, the city of Athens would provide a perfect illustration of what God's talking about. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson is a Greek scholar. Look what he, what he says about the Athenian plague. Uh, during the second year of the Peloponnesian War, that's the great war between Athens and Sparta, Infected Athenians probably died in greater proportions of the population than did residents of medieval London during the worst years of the Black Death. A community, this is brilliant, listen to this, a community that professes faith in science has real trouble accounting for naturally occurring calamity when its own God reason fails. The pandemonium that followed from the plague in Athens reminds us that civilization can be lost anywhere at any time. Close quote. Folks, the Athenians went bonkers. They were searching for solutions under every weird rock. Thucydides was an Athenian general, an Athenian general, he was also a great historian. He was there. And when you read Thucydides, it's so horrifying. He describes uh, three great things that happened in Athens. Collective hysteria, weird cults, and anthropocentric blame. Everybody was looking to whistle at somebody else. They must be to blame. Oh my goodness, you may be sick, you may be sick. All these things surged to heights that had never been seen before in Athens. By the way, you may get to experience the same thing here in North Texas. Because our culture, having jettisoned Scripture for our own God reason, we, we Americans are only one new virus away from seeing people run around like chickens with their heads cut off. That's what verse 4 is describing. It's, it's dark. It's severe. It's people whistling at each other in blame. It is hopeless because people assume God doesn't exist and, and, and he is hands off. Therefore, they panic. But there is a second response that will happen during the Great Tribulation, described at the end of verse 4. This is a response that can happen now. While some are running around in fear, others will study God's word and knowledge will increase. If you want to invest for eternity, if you want to be increasing, you must study scripture, including prophecy. This is one of the great means by which lives are changed. When God's people put our seal on prophecy, when we're willing to learn from it and stand behind it, people are drawn to the light, which sadly is an area of deep concern I have for our current churches. Prophecy these days is embarrassing to some Christians, partly because of nutty extra-biblical predictions that our brethren have made, which make us all laugh. But despite the nuts out there, we must increase in biblical knowledge, including prophecy, whether it's fashionable or not. 
Increasing scripture knowledge is how we become beacons of hope, like what my kids found at the Baye, light, gospel, hopeful, hands-on, bell. So, what will we do? Specifically, let's ask these questions of ourselves. You and I, are we going to just hide away? In a dark and difficult culture, we're just going to hide away? Or will you and I share like the evangelists who bring brightness, like the stars? Are we going to associate our names with God's Word, proudly, naturally, winsomely living out Scripture and being identified with it? Or are we going to, and this is the norm, by the way, even among our brethren, are we just going to be content with a veneer of watery Christianity sprinkled on top of the common culture? Which is it going to be? Will, will we seek fame now? Or are we going to wisely wait for greater rewards by thinking eternally? Are we going to grow in scriptural wisdom? Or, or are we going to run around like headless chickens in times of panic? Choice is yours. Please choose wisely. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and my own tendency to panic. I pray for my brothers and sisters who, like me, have a, have a proclivity to hide away or to just put a little Christian veneer on culture. Oh, my goodness, and we are so seduced by fame now. Lord, we beg you to continue to change us. I pray that we grow in scriptural wisdom, which changes everything, so that we, so that we shine in brightness for you. Lord, I, I, let me put it this way. I pray that when people come in contact with us, they leave the encounter feeling like my kids did at the Baye, like they were just at a lighthouse. In Jesus' name, amen.